Good morning, everyone. Our reading this morning comes from Romans uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 13 to the end of uh, chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of faith, to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, I was preparing this week, and I had selected this half of a chapter to finish today, which was really should have been taught altogether with the earlier part, but we didn't have three hours together, unfortunately. That's not my choice. Some of you feel like that's too long. Um, And then when I was preparing these last uh, verses from verse 13 to 25, I again decided to split it up. And so we're going to go right to chapter 17, but only the first part of the verse, which is also the first part of the sentence. So next time, God willing, we'll handle the rest of it. Uh, but I've picked the, the most opportune place to stop there, which is right, right dead in the center of a sentence. As Christ's own apostle to the Gentiles, Paul wrote to an unsettled church in Rome, which was experiencing divisions along ethnic and cultural lines between Jews and Gentiles, with the joint purpose of defending the grace alone gospel which he preached and explaining how this genuine gospel would eliminate the distinctions between Jewish and Gentile believers, thus bringing peace. So the main themes then are the full inclusion of certain Gentiles into the people of God and the basis of their inclusion, which is according to the exact same way that certain Jews are also included, the path of Abraham by way of faith. And so, we have already learned from the last part of the passage that Abraham's righteousness, that is, his right standing before God or his justification, did not come through circumcision, which is to say he would not have been considered an Israelite or a Jew according to the law and custom. God counted him righteous when he believed God before he was circumcised. 
Abraham, we saw, was the first Gentile convert. And this reality makes it clear that circumcision, be, being or becoming a Jew, was not required for people to be considered a part of Abraham's family, members of the people of God and heirs of His promise. But if being a Jew was not necessary to receive Abraham's inheritance, then, you know, Gentile believers would at least have to keep the Jewish law in order to be considered one people, one body with the descendants of Israel, right? Well, let's look at Abraham. We know that right standing with God did not come to Abraham by his ethnicity or by his circumcision. So, did the promises of God instead come to him as he obeyed the law? No. He received the covenant promises by faith 500 years before the law was even given. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of God, which comes from faith, Romans 1.17, has now been condensed into this phrase, the righteousness of faith, which serves to make the connection even more explicit between righteousness and faith. When God made the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, there was no mention of the law at all. The promise was connected only with the choice made by God and the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, God made several promises specific to Abram before his name was changed to Abraham. But the promise, the promise, I should say, uh, which Paul refers to here, that Abraham and his descendants would inherit the world, is most likely from Genesis 17, 4 to 8. I'm going to read it, but you're going to see why I say most likely. God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, you can see here why we might be interested in seeing who are the recipients of Abraham's promises, because these are pretty fantastic promises. But what we don't see, or, or you might notice, is that Paul seems to misquote or even add on to the promise, because in Genesis, God promised to give Abraham and his descendants, Genesis 15, 18, the whole land of Canaan, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And that they would, Genesis twenty two seventeen, possess the gate of their enemies. So where does Paul get this idea that Abraham was going to inherit the world? Before Paul's time, the promise of land had come to, underst come to be understood to mean that they would inherit the world. Scripture promised Abraham 
the land. But in Hebrew, this could mean either a specific land or the whole earth. And by Paul's day, Jewish thinkers often applied the promise to the world as a whole or even to inheriting the world that is to come. And so I was actually quite surprised to find that in first century Israel, living in the land of Israel was not usually considered to be a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies regarding the promised land. Prophecies such as Jeremiah 32, 37 to 39, and Ezekiel eleven seventeen to 20 were commonly understood by Jewish scholars, Jewish teachers of the first century to be pointing to a future reality, not the reality of living in the land of Israel. Ezekiel eleven seventeen to 20, for instance, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk within my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. With the the completion of the Old Testament... It became obvious to Israel's inhabitants that they were not experiencing the bulk of what Abraham's covenant contained. This is why the author of Hebrews takes time to explain why Abraham and all his spiritual descendants had not yet received what God had promised. Abraham's 11, or Abraham's Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. I can tell preaching is going to get better and better as I get older. By... By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, right? There's a specific place. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And so we're meant to see that the land that Abraham longed for, the promised land for Abraham, was not merely the land of Canaan. If so, he would have just gone back there. But there was a greater land. Early Jewish thinkers, these Jewish writers of the first century, although they lived in the land of Israel, did not consider living in the land of Israel to be the fulfillment of God's promise of land. Now, it is not as though Paul 
then merely follows the traditions of men here, but these early writers had followed the logic of the whole council of Scripture up until their time, recognizing that God continued to give further clarity to this promise through the prophets. And so Abraham had a promise of a land, a specific land in a specific time and place, but the prophets added to this throughout the rest of the Bible. Like Paul, these early Jewish thinkers saw the many Old Testament passages which speak of God's Messiah, the offspring of Abraham, having authority over the whole earth and every nation, such as Zechariah 9.10, he shall rule, or sorry, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And Daniel 7.14 And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when the apostle speaks of Abraham inheriting the world, he's not simply adopting the current Jewish beliefs, but it was a place where their understanding of the Old Testament Scripture was correct. And yet, it was insufficient. Paul was able to point to this truth they had in order to point to the truth which they lacked, which was to understand that this promise to Abraham was to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that this promise extended to people from every nation who follow in Abraham's faith. You follow this? So, there's a promise to Abraham, but God, throughout the four times God gives him the promise, it gets better and better. And after Abraham dies, the descendants of Abraham, the spiritual descendants by faith, get better and better promises all the way through the Old Testament until by the time the prophets have written, we're not only to understand that God's people are going to inherit Israel, even the Israelites, the Jews themselves, did not understand it to be that they would inherit Israel. They already had Israel. They understood, according to God's prophets, that they were going to inherit Israel the whole earth. Paul picks up on this. Then in verse 14, Paul continues in the theme of what he has been saying all along, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Oh, I've skipped ahead in my notes. Give me a second, sorry. Abraham had his name changed to or Abram had his name changed to Abraham, which means father of many, even as the promise was increased in his life, right? The promise was given that he would have a son, and then he had a son, and then God said, no, it's not that son. That's a biological son, but you're going to have a son who's going to follow you in the faith, a spiritual son as well as biological, Isaac, and then the, the promise is increased, and Abraham's name is, or Abram's name is changed to Abraham, father of many, even as the promise was given that he would be the father of many nations. In other words, that the one nation that comes from Abram is going to be a nation made up of many nations. As the gospel spreads and people come under the lordship of Jesus Christ by faith, not by adherence to the law. Verse 14, for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, adherence of the law, 
refers to both ethnic Jews and also those who would seek to be counted righteous by law observance. So there were both uh, Jewish uh, law observant Jews and proselytes, people who would come and and, uh, Gentiles who would come and, and live as Jews observing the Jewish law. It is common in some areas for Christians to be seduced into thinking that there is spiritual value in trying to follow the law, whether it is through what they eat or by observing Jewish feasts, keeping holy days, or any other area of observance to Israel's ancient laws. But how does that fit with what Paul says about the law? If someone claims that people become heirs to the promises of Abraham through keeping the law, they are going against what the Scriptures clearly say about how Abraham received the promise. They are effectively saying that faith is worthless. Worse than that, such people also place themselves under God's wrath because their inevitable failure to perfectly keep the law brings wrath, verse 15, because they're in... Inevitable failure brings wrath. See, what the law does is it exposes our guilt and it reveals our unrighteousness, but it can't possibly be a means of justification, only a means of condemnation. My professor says the law is like soil that always produces wrath, while faith is like soil that always produces righteousness and blessing. The law has a purpose, and faith does not void the law. The law brings to our attention that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. The law brings to our attention that we, like everyone else, have fallen short of the glory of God. But if law observance were a viable path to blessing, righteousness, and becoming heirs to the kingdom of God, then faith becomes void. Faith becomes empty and useless, and the promise has no effect. Just as faith does not void the law, that is, it does not rob it of its purpose, so the law cannot be allowed to void faith and rob it of its purpose. Otherwise, Scripture itself and God's covenant are called into question. The inheritance of Abraham cannot be gained through the law because the law only brings wrath instead of blessing. Why? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. The reason God's wrath is activated by the law is that people fail to keep it, even if they try their best. The point here is not that there is no sin at all without the law. People were sinners long before the law was given to Moses. Transgression is used as a technical term specifically for violating one of God's expressed commands. So there's many kinds of sin. People sin all the time. But a transgression is when God says, don't do this or do do this, and we do the opposite. It is direct rebellion to the command of God. To commit a transgression, you have to disobey one of God's commands. And so this was true of Adam and Eve. They transgressed. God gave them a command, right? Told them what not to do. And they transgressed that command, and then they suffered the consequences. Transgression of the law involves greater responsibility since the infraction is conscious and therefore involves rebellion against God's standard. 
So, the law has not ultimately helped God's people enter into God's promise. It has done just the opposite. It has brought God's wrath because they have failed to keep it. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So, Paul continues in the theme of of including believing Gentiles into the same people, the same body as believing Jews. But the verse begins with an exclamation which literally reads, because of this, from faith, which doesn't sound very normal in English. So, it's changed to, this is why it depends on faith. But in, in Greek, it's because of, because of this, from faith, which is an important phrase because it instantly connects us back to the thesis statement of Romans 1, 16 to 17. Uh, will you read along with me or, or quote from memory if you are now able? Romans 1, 16 to 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This statement really summarizes the entire major argument of Romans. And here in chapter 4, verse 16, Paul is saying, I have now proven the first part of my thesis. In light of what we have seen about how Abraham was credited with righteousness and received the promises of God, it is now clear that it has come about from faith. See how he's connecting back to this? Because of this, from faith. Remember I said this, this salvation comes from faith, for faith. It's a salvation that is not of works, so that no one can boast. It comes to us by faith, but it's also for faith. It's going to produce the obedience of faith. And for this reason, we will not be ashamed. Putting our hope and trust in this gospel will not leave us ashamed at the judgment. We will have nothing to be ashamed about having believed this gospel that is both the only way to salvation and the only way to obedience. And so, he comes back to it here. It is clear that Abraham's salvation, his justification, even his obedience came from faith. And this is the very same way in which every human being, whether Jew or Gentile, must be saved. Then, behind all this stands the expressed purpose of God. That is why it depends on faith. There's a reason behind it. Why does it depend on faith? God has determined that the fulfillment of the promise should come through faith so that it may be by grace and so that it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. How else could God guarantee the salvation of all Abraham's offspring unless He just does it Himself? That's the point. This is why God chose that salvation must come from faith for faith because He would not be willing to lose any of those that He has called to Himself. He is not a terrible father who's indifferent about whether he would lose a child. He will save all of his own just as Jesus gave the example of a shepherd with a hundred sheep. He's not going to just be like, well, 99 is good enough. 
which is then uh, distilled down to the two sons. And of course, the father isn't just going to be like, well, my one son's run off, but at least I got one left over. God is a good father. And so he determined that his plan of salvation would come through faith so that it would be by grace and thus guarantee to all of Abraham's offspring this salvation that he has wrought. God had an intention in this. That realization of the promise would be affected by His grace and not based on ethnicity or law observance. The promise is realized by faith, not by our own merit or works, not by keeping certain elements of the law, so that it may be by God's grace alone that we may inherit the blessings which has been earned by Christ alone. And so God doesn't analyze us and then under that analysis pronounce us righteous because He has found some, even some inkling of pure righteousness in us. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. But God is not willing that any of His should perish. So God graciously gives us the gift of justification when we believe and imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. That is, counts it to us. The offspring of Abraham, which will receive his inheritance, Christ's inheritance, is further specified, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Paul has spent two chapters now explaining that mere ethnicity and outward physical signs constitute no distinction before God and do not make people true children of Abraham. Now, Paul contends that Abraham's promised inheritance cannot be gained through the law, with the intent of communicating that both Jewish Christians and Gentiles who share the faith of Abraham are the true people of God together. From the very beginning of Israel's story, God had made it clear that Abraham would not only be the father of the Israelite nation, but he would be the father of many nations. But for 2,000 years, the promise had gone unfulfilled. Israel had been reduced to just one relatively small tribe, Judah. And the Jews, those of the tribe of Judah, were a scattered people. And those who did remain living in their ancestral home were living under an unrighteous regime. The promise of the restoration of God's people began to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the true Son of God true Israel. And then, as the gospel began to be preached to the Jewish remnant and to Gentiles across the earth who would be grafted into God's people, both Jews and Gentiles who walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith will have their own gifted faith credited to them as righteousness. In this way, they, we all, become heirs of the world as God has promised. Why is this important to us? Well, first of all, even as Ephesians 6.12 says, the the rulers of this world and and the authorities over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil, uh, are, are fomenting hatred between ancestries, ethnicities, polarizing people against one another, instigating divisions between generations and even among households. 
And it is imperative that the church resists all such efforts to enforce any distinctions between persons. Only faith matters. We don't talk about race here very often. We're not in, in the center of, you know, huge woke ideology and uh, in a big center. We're a predominantly Caucasian congregation. But you see what's happening in the world. And in the church, we are not to see one another as part of other groups, especially as we other those other groups, if you know what I mean. In the church, we are all have left our former allegiances. We're no longer a part of whatever people we came from. You can say, well, your people did this or that. I'll say, those are not my people. We have left the world to become part of a new people. Our allegiance has changed. We're part of a new kingdom, one body in Christ. And when the church fails to understand that, we have divisions that begin, and, and the world is all about that. It wants to produce these divisions, and it, must, and it insists. The world insists that these divisions must also take place in the church. We must resist this. Also, as... Paul handles the situation between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's not really so much an ethnic division as it is a cultural division. They have Jewish people who have done things the right way for an awfully long time. They dress the right way. They trim their beards the right way. They eat the right way. And now there comes a group of these wild Gentiles come in, and they're new believers, and they don't do anything the way we did it before. There's a lot of opportunity for offense to come into the church when there's different generations and different groups of people with different backgrounds and different ways of doing things. It's not what we're looking at here. We'll come to that later in Romans 14, but they're going to need to decide which things are the things our Lord has commanded. We're going to do those, and whatever He hasn't given us a command on, we're going to love one another anyway. And so, not only that, but there are those who grew up in the church or have been Christians a long time, and they know how to act right, and they know how to, to put on their Sunday best, and they know how to ha, ha come into a situation looking like a believer, and, and they can look down their noses as those who don't do things the same way they do. And we're to understand that even these wild Gentiles coming into the church are one body, one flesh, one church, the very body of Christ together with these people who have a thousand generations of doing the right thing under their belt. Both come to God under the same circumstance. Both desperately need God's grace. None comes worthy before the throne of God. All come by the mercy and grace that is offered to us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who gave Himself on the cross. We also need to understand that the Bible is our story. It's not somebody else's. These are our people who God was so faithful to, though they rebelled again and again. Abraham, if we are are sons and daughters by faith, Abraham is our ancestor by faith. Abraham's people are our people. And so when we read the stories of the Bible, this is the story of our people. That changes things. I have 
had someone give me their family ancestry. They've written it all down and they've given me their family history. And I went, oh, that's interesting, and put it on my shelf. Because I'm not that interested in their family history. But anyone in my family writes a little bit of family history. I'm like, oh, cool, what happened? Like, what did, our, what did grandpa do? What did great-grandpa do? What, what, why is our, our family name the Hanfords? And who are the Tetleys? And I, 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 I'm interested in that kind of stuff. When we come to the Bible, this is our people. This is our sin. This is our Savior. This is God working amongst his people. Whoever you are, wherever you live, Whatever land is your homeland, wherever your racial or ethnic background, if you place your trust for your standing before God in the work of Jesus Christ, Abraham is your father. You too are numbered among the people of God, those who believe and who are justified by faith. Let's pray. God, we thank, are so thankful to you this morning for your very great, wonderful promises. And Lord, there are those who have walked as believers but yet have failed to recognize where your promises are for them. The whole world is promised to those who follow in the footsteps of faith of our father Abraham. Salvation through the work of Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. Welcome as a full citizen in the people of God. Welcomed and adopted into the family of God. These are the highlights of the gospel that we're looking at this morning. And God, I pray that you would impress them upon us. That we would have great joy. That we who were once not a people are now God's people. We who once had no covenant are brought by sheer mercy and grace alone into the covenant. We who were once enemies of God are called children of God, brothers and sisters of one another. Even as we read this passage, I expect, Holy Spirit, that you are doing a work of unification in our church. And God, I pray that we would revel in the joy of our salvation. Ask this for the glory of Christ Jesus. Amen.